Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. I want to see science serve a useful purpose to improve the standard of living for all people. Why is anyone fighting food advance? A very small percentage of the world's population is fortunate enough to have the luxury of turning down food. We've arranged a society based on science and technology. There was nobody understands anything about science and technology. You can't build a peaceful world on empty stomachs and human misery. You're listening to Talking Biotech, a weekly podcast illuminating issues in agricultural and medical biotechnology. Your questions and concerns are addressed using a science-based approach with the goal of driving discovery to application with communication. Now here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulton. So welcome to Talking Biotech. It's the weekly podcast where we discuss innovations and breakthroughs in genetic engineering. And whether they're in medicine, animals, or plants, it's new technology that really is making an impact in many ways and maybe could do more if we had a better understanding of what this technology did from a society side. Scientists feel pretty good with this technology, yet there's still suspicion in the public for lots of reasons we've discussed before. But one way we can break through that is by having better communication about what this technology is and what it isn't. What are the strengths? What are its limitations? And I just got back from the ASPB conference out in um, Austin, Texas, which is fun. And many people came up to me and said, you know, how do I get started? I, I would love to talk about this technology. I would love to be a voice of science. But there's a huge learning curve. Um, there's hostility. Um, I'm not sure how to start. So I thought it would be really great to have a guest on board who's already done that. And today we welcome to the Talking Biotech podcast, uh, Professor Professor Paul Vincelli. Uh, he's from University of Kentucky. He's an extension professor and pro- provost distinguished service professor, which is quite an honor. He's in the plant pathology per, uh, department up at University of Kentucky. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Paul. Well, it's a, it's a pleasure, Kevin. Thank you for inviting me. And, and I do want to say at the outset that uh, I really appreciate what you've done for science outreach and especially through all the very difficult times you've had in the last year. So I'm really it's really a pleasure to be speaking to you today. Well, likewise, I, I've always followed you on Twitter, and I've appreciated your your blogs, your your thoughts, just in general in science, but also just the way that you really do uh, help what all of us are trying to do in terms of sharing the science and sharing what this technology is and isn't. So, thank you too. <laughs> yes, sir. thank you. Well, uh, let's uh, start with uh, what what do you do on a normal daily basis before we get too much into the uh, discussion of genetic engineering and its communication strategies. What do you do in, uh, say, your with plant pathology, both in research or extension? 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've been here for 26 years, very much enjoy this department. Uh, and, uh, and for all that time, as an extension specialist, I've had extension responsibilities for diseases of certain commodities. They've changed uh, through the years somewhat depending on the particular you know, needs of the group and the people we had at the time. Um, but um, pr actually presently, and so you know, I would do applied research and outreach on diseases and their management for any particular set of crops that I might uh, be responsible for. Now, uh, it, it, in the last couple of years, with the, with the full and complete assent of, of uh, the administration here, I uh, have actually moved more into providing outreach on genetic engineering of crops. And uh, I still do extension plant pathology, but uh, I'd say more than half of my time is, is more on the outreach on genetic engineering because of the great need and, and uh, the fact that my commodities are kind of humming along. There's no major uh, fires to put out. And so it gives me an opportunity to talk about genetic engineering to the public. That's cool. What are the major commodities in, uh, in your area? In my particular area, currently I am responsible for forage crops, uh, turf grass, and forest trees. In the last, uh, the, the the latter uh, group of of commodities, the forest trees are something I'm still on a steep learning curve on. I used to be responsible for corn, and uh, until we hired a, another extension specialist who is really the country's excellent best grain specialist. So I was I was responsible for corn pathology for many years as well. Well, let's uh, just real quickly, could you tell us what it means to be an extension specialist or an extension professor? Sure. Well, we, um, we basically serve as the resource of, of some particular area of specialty in, in the full range of things that, that go on in the College of Agriculture, Food, and Environment. So, so every county agent uh, can you know they're they're actually pretty darn good plant doctors because of all the kinds of problems they come into their office and they they've got to learn what they what those diseases are and what those insect pests are and you know they do a great job of that but you know whenever they run into something they don't recognize or, or especially if they're new to the job then we are the people they lean on the most for diagnoses for um, uh, recommendations for maybe uh, talks at uh, commodity meetings in the in the state or in the region, so we're we're really kind of the narrow focus specialists uh, for, for in, in the case of plants for uh, you know the plants that we and any plant really in the state of, of Kentucky we're responsible for. And it's really interesting when you say that your subject matter is really shifting towards more discussion about genetic engineering. Because I know that in the state of Florida, I get ex I get invited to extension meetings constantly. Um, people really reaching out because our extension agents are really being uh, asked front and center, what is this technology? What does it do? What does it not do? What's safe? And it's awesome that Kentucky has the vision to kind of put the mantle on somebody to run with this. And um, how did that start? Well, yeah, that's kind of interesting. I was on sabbatical in uh, 2014, so just a couple of years ago, uh, in Nicaragua, and uh, the pro the project that I had that I had proposed to the Fulbright Commission, which was my f source of funding, basically fell apart when I got there, and through no fault of mine, or no no blame to throw around. But you know, I could have gone home, and I said, well, no, <laughs> I, I don't want to do that. Maybe there's something else of value I can do, and I ended up doing some other uh, very important um, kinds of learning. Uh, and one of those was 
genetic engineering. I just started reading papers that I normally don't have time to read. And I, and I you know, read for several months. I, I actually, I, that was when I first was exposed to you. I, I recorded uh, or watched that recording of your biotechnology day in Florida, University of Florida, several years ago. And, you know, and, and that was when I first became familiar with you and your work. And I, and I said, you know, this, there's a lot here that people don't know. And uh, wouldn't, wouldn't it be interesting to do outreach on this? So I contacted the Extension Administration in the college, and I said, you know, I, this is, I've learned a lot about this subject. I, I'd kind of like to, uh, to provide some outreach. What do you think? Is it, is, you know, you, are you okay with that? And, and the administration responded, yes, it's urgent. And so, you know, we I, probably, just like, like Florida, our college recognizes that there are, there are many questions that people have. Um, some are strongly held opinions, but most Americans simply want to know more. And uh, I think there's some opportunities to provide, a, you know, the genuine full range of the scientific findings that we know, those that we don't. And uh, it's it's actually been, uh, you know, very, very well re- received in in Kentucky. The, the agents really have appreciated having somebody they can lean on for the full, you know, everything. You know, I, 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 I try to earn everything, not just, you know, one particular area, but, you know, the, the whole discussion with Ron Harry in there a couple of weeks ago uh, and uh, you know the Indian suicides uh, among farmers that you know everything that I that touches on this topic I I want to read about and learn about from credible sources yeah that's actually kind of the the fun part of this is that it's not a uh, technology that's uh, well, it's a technology that I grew up with that you know going back into the late 70s early 80s as a kid and teenager, I was really interested in reading about all of this new area of genetic engineering. And even today, I find it really easy to, to digest all of the new literature because it has such deep context. Um, whereas everything else, I'm trying to hang, you know, the newest information on, on what has already been a mountain of research I'm not familiar with. It's, uh, so I, I, under, I share your interest there. Um, how would you advise others who are interested in getting into this topic? What's the best first steps? Yeah, there's some good ones. Um, one now are the typically do you, do you do you find people who want to get in are are sort of the, the scientific community working on universities, or is this a, sort of a bigger even a bigger group? What's what's your well? Let's, what's your, let's talk about university communities because a lot sure. of the listenership we have a lot of grad students and postdocs gotcha. and and uh, professors who listen, and I think right. a lot of them are hesitant to get into it because maybe it's not their area of their exact focus, but also yeah. because of the pushback. And so you're looking at a content and a presentation hurdle. And so what what's some what are some of the barriers sure. that can help them overcome that? Yeah, yeah. Well, I'd say that graduate students and postdocs and so on and, and uh, educators in this post-secondary realm have a pretty good idea of where to go for credible scientific information. So you've got that sort of leg up, you know, uh, the, the, you know places like the National Academy of Sciences, peer-reviewed literature, things like that. You know, you, you already know where you can go for the most uh, credible scientific information. The, the second piece of this is the one that... It, I, I must tell you, it really, it really, you, you have to hit me over the head so I can get this. But, but um, the social sciences have been very helpful to me in um, understanding how to better talk about controversial topics. 
And, uh, you know, I've, I've done outreach on climate change here in the state of Kentucky, and now I'm doing outreach on genetic engineering. And um, it really, it really, uh, what, what, is it, what is our tendency as, as scientists? What do we do if we, <laughs> we throw lots of data? Yeah, right? I know where you're going with this one. <laughs> you know where I'm going with this. Right. And, and the more data you throw, the less people are paying attention to in the general public. The data are what we want as scientists. And, and that's what our whole what our seminars about and you all you all know that if you're graduate students but that the way to to reach out to the public is not through lots of data uh, more data simply increased resistance it's more um to it was a phrase a phrase you said on a program a few weeks ago because i, I listened to all your programs kevin oh that's nice uh, <laughs> yeah i everyone I, I even when i was lecturing in china i was listening to your program um what, so you you said a, an important phrase that i should write down on my hand because it, it I forget it so often. Shared values, shared values. It, if you know, really, if you if you're talking about genetic engineering, you probably have shared values with people in that audience. I mean, we what do we care about? We care about you know adequate supply of food for everybody, safe food, nutritious food, um, food produced in an environmentally sensitive way, and um, so whatever the method that we get there with we're sharing values with that audience and it bringing in that concept and 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 showing that we're talking about the same things that's that's one of the things that i've learned from social scientists and uh, and Mm -hmm. there's more actually my my fiance is a social scientist so i'm i'm kind of lucky to (laughs) got that kind of access really no that's true i mean it's, it's really funny because it if you find that if you can earn people's trust and you demonstrate to them that you do share a, a similar platform, same concerns, same concerns for your family, maybe for you know the planet, for you know all the things that we as gushy sci- uh, university scientists really got in the business for. And when people understand where we're coming from, they don't care about data, they don't care about graphs, they don't care about citations and authors. What they want to know is, well, is it safe? Mm-hmm. And and that's it. You know, there, you go past all of the need for information because it's not correcting a deficit. It's establishing yeah. our authority and our trust um, as as authorities who have studied this stuff, so that the good information can just flow directly. Yeah, we don't have yeah. to convince them with numbers. Yeah, and and that's good because, like you say, that's a language we speak. Um, it's actually I wrote an article that'll be on the ASPB um, blog probably Monday, that follows that same idea. It's it's just that it's a different language than scientists are taught to speak. Yeah, absolutely. All of our training is in how to speak to other scientists, and, and that's important. And, and so, uh, you know, we, 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 we're going to continue that. And if you're talking about a controversial subject... It's such a minefield because because data are yeah we, we we're both saying the same thing data aren't what uh, sway the boat. Now um, there uh, there are a number of things that I've learned from social scientists, but I, I do would like to mention another, and that is because I, this is, has been useful for me. This is this is not useful necessarily with larger audiences, but on an individual basis, there's a model that um, my my sweetheart calls the illicit provide illicit model and so that's three components illicit provide illicit so illicit 
Um, so what what did you you know what did you mean by that or explain more? I'd like to really understand what do you you know where are you coming from? So you elicit their what their concerns are or what their you know anything you, you let them speak elicit their their thoughts and and do a little active listening. So what you're saying is this, yeah yeah okay got it thanks. So then the the provide is the second step. So would you be interested in more you know so uh, you know some additional information? And so you provide you know some additional information. And then you elicit their response, elicit, provide, elicit. So now the second elicit is, what do you think of that? And um, I, I have found, I mean, there is no magic in this topic. There's no way to, you know, for everybody to suddenly join hands and agree. But I have found that sometimes people that initially seemed rather um, resistant to, you know, whose eyebrows went up when I said I provide outreach on genetic engineering, they uh, they would uh, you know say hey okay I see where you're coming from you know interesting you know so there's still this aspect that bothers me but there's that and I can see that so uh, yeah social scientists really have a lot to offer us I can tell you maybe a funny short story on that was I went yeah. to a meeting in Yuma Arizona a few years ago that was a university I don't remember remember what the meeting was university industry consortium and there were university and industry people there. And they had a section on science communication. And it was Robin Stryker from University of Arizona, Vance Crow from Monsanto, um, Charlie Arnott from uh, Center for Food Integrity, and me. And each one of us gave a talk. And mm-hmm. it was really interesting because Robin Stryker came from a very uh, uh, parochial um, uh, um, uh, sociology background. Charlie came from surveys. Vance came from corporate side with all of the focus groups that they do. And I came at it from 15 years of boots on the ground talking to people. And it was so funny because we all came hmm. to the same outcome. And it all came back to like that common concerns, shared values message. Really, yeah. really weird. It's like we almost meant it to happen. Yeah. Well, and with enough years and paying attention, maybe maybe one can learn those lessons. I, I need this those reminders but uh yeah they it's it's true you know there's there's some there's some good guidelines out there uh from from these kinds of experiences so so you were talking about so so not only do you uh stick your face in the fan of genetic engineering yeah. outreach <laughs> but you um you, you also uh stick the scissors into the electrical outlet yes. of climate change <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah right yeah that that was where i had my first introduction to uh to worldview, um, and 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 yeah, I had this idea that that uh, because I was an extension specialist and because extension is very well respected and trusted in Kentucky, which is true, um, I would be able to influence thinking on climate change because I did exactly the same thing as I do with genetic engineering. I read lots and lots of papers and I read lots and lots of information from you know credible sources and i went to the american geophysical union and met climate scientists and had beer or coffee with them and um and uh no it wasn't uh it wasn't that there's more to it than um than uh than just the data and boy that was a surprising lesson it was kind of getting swatted in the face uh but uh but but you know that 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 that's so, so really, the climate change. This is no surprise to you, Kevin. But, uh, but the climate climate change instance is 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 very similar. You know, vaccines, climate change, uh, evolution, uh, and genetic engineering. There's there's there there are social psychological forces um, that are more powerful than just the data in terms of of uh, people's opinions on it. So we have to we have to be able to. Um, 
negotiate those those kinds of challenges. And so what were some of the challenges that you see, like as an extension specialist? Do you find a lot of pushback in what is, you know, I mean, technically a red state, which tends to uh, adopt a more cynical view or, or I should say skeptical view of climate claims? Uh, how do you find that extension um, experience? Yeah, I, it was funny. I, I, it was, I got actually invited to more speaking opportunities out of state than in. So I don't know if that's because sometimes the profit from, you know, a foreign land is, is, is the one to be heard or, or maybe it was just because they could bring in this outside speaker and then I would disappear and, no, you know, they could blame me, you know, if, if uh, when I was gone. But uh, I, 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 didn't, I didn't really get very many invitations to speak on the subject in Kentucky. I did get some. Uh, and I was glad for that, but uh, but I had several in some, you know, very very uh, skeptical settings, you know, grain growers associations in the region out of outside of Kentucky. So um, I, d- I don't know if I ever made a difference. Uh, to be honest, I, I was um, you know I spent a couple years on it, uh, to, you know, and gave it everything. Uh, never had really, fortunately, the bad experiences you've had in genetic engineering, but but gave it my heart. Uh, you know, maybe I pushed the envelope a little bit here at the university in, in that way. Uh, but but I think climate change, or sorry, uh, genetic engineering, I'm finding to be a more uh, a more timely subject because really a lot of people are interested in it and want to know more. Whereas with climate change, I think many people just don't want to hear it. They've got their minds made up. Uh, you know, in whatever direction, and uh, whereas in genetic engineering, there are, there are there are many that that you know, even on sitting next to somebody on a plane, sometimes they just say, oh, you you do you work on that? Tell me more, you know. <laughs> well, I guess I I always am curious about the best way to communicate climate. I'm scheduled to give a talk on climate change in agriculture in December um, at uh, uh, in Ottawa, but one of the things that i always like to communicate to farmers and we're seeing it more and more in a place like florida is that the low chill peaches that require some chilling before they'll flower um, don't flower very well because they're not getting enough chilling our blueberries i'm um, not getting enough chilling um, it just is um you know strawberries it's too too hot all winter and so we used to have this nice mild winter climate that now is borderlining on summer and i think that the farmers who traditionally support um, candidates which may have the skeptical climate skeptic viewpoints I think they're going to be a very strong voice because they see in their hands and on their land they see the evidence of the change and maybe the way to communicate this in a soft way from a scientific standpoint is we're not saying that you need to abandon your car and that you need to uh, you know create new policy for whatever but you have to acknowledge that it's real before we can start to come up with solutions. Yeah, yeah. You know, climate change is very interesting because because farmers are living climate change more intimately than anybody else. And and so it's always been interesting that um, the farming community, many farming communities, the representatives of the farming communities are uh, so resistant to the, the, you know, the basics of, of the science of climate change. But because they live with it, but but again, it's because worldview issues, um, you know, social psychological forces. Uh, the team that I identify with is, you know, those are, you know, those are more important, you know, than uh, than I think a lot of us natural scientists realize. 
one of the things um, that I've pulled out of the, you know, the, the my pocket with when I've talked to growers about climate change has been, you know, actually genetic engineering. Even before I was doing outreach on it, you know, and that is, you know, I mean, most grain farmers accept the sciences, the science associated with genetic engineering. You know, they they understand they're safe, safe to consume. They understand the benefits that they see, and so they're very happy to accept the science. And so, you know, how would it be any different with human caused climate change we we uh, you know these are they're living the predictions of of the theory of of global warming and uh you know why how can we reject the scientific community in one case and accept it in the other and knowing that there are people that do the, the reverse they they fully accept climate change is happening it's human caused and and reject the basically the scientific consensus around the safety of of consuming genetically engineered crops, so uh, so maybe that will reach growers uh, when they realize they're they're not you know they're 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 accepting science in one case and not not in the other. Yeah, it's kind of the uh, what I always refer to as the inverse Linus. Um, you know, it, it, it's uh, you know Mark Linus had the certainly was aware of climate and still is a very strong proponent of understanding climate changes and. Uh, did not have the strongest grasp upon what was happening with genetic engineering and really had a kind of, uh, was very honest to himself in that he said we're going right. to look at all the data. And uh, he'll yeah. be a guest on the podcast in a few weeks too. Um, but we're, we're talking today with uh, Extension Professor Paul Vincelli. Um, your name was on my calendar and, and my assistant said, a nice Italian boy. Yeah. <laughs> Paul Vincelli. Um, but we're going to take a short break here and then we'll be back on the other side and talk about some of your more international exploits and ways that you've been able to discuss this subject in other places. We'll be right back in just a few minutes. Hello, Talking Biotech aficionados. Thanks for listening. We continue this enterprise with the hope of spreading the infection of science. It's a curious pathogen that, when you contract it, makes you immune to nonsense and poor quality information. (laughs) Like cupping. (laughs) Well, now we need you to step up and be a shill for Big Podcast. Go to the place where you download podcasts and write a review for Talking Biotech. It can be positive. It can be negative. I don't care. Just share your thoughts, because that's the only way that I can get better at doing this. Suggest guests. Suggest guest hosts. Suggest a topic that you just want to understand better. Remember, this podcast is fueled by the kind interest of a wonderful audience, and your feedback helps keep us relevant and happy. (laughs) Now, we've elected to not entertain sponsors or solicit donations. So your good vibrations fuel my groove. And remember, remember, tell a friend, write a review. And now, back to the Talking Biotech Podcast. And we're back on the Talking Biotech Podcast with Paul, Dr. Paul Vincelli. Uh, he's an extension professor and the Provost Distinguished Service Professor at University of Kentucky in the Plant Pathology Department. And he has uh, probably is the leading extension figure in the country with respect to getting out and talking to uh, farmers, consumers about genetic engineering and uh, and um, and climate change. Uh, doing a really nice job at taking the facts from the university 
out into the public. But your public doesn't just end in Lexington. Um, you've been really busy all over the world. And so tell us about some of your experiences sure. in other countries and how is it a little different than what happens here? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I've been blessed to have the, all the opportunities to travel as part of my job. Uh, and my principal travel activities have been in Latin America and in China. Um, so you mentioned the, U- the UK Confucius Institute. Uh, and UK, for your listeners, in this context, is the University of Kentucky. Uh, so, <laughs> so the, yeah, we have a great Confucius Institute, and they arrange for summer teaching opportunities where you know where we go and uh, lecturers like me go and and spend three and a half to four weeks at a university doing you know quite a few talks, but um, primary among those being a a course and undergraduate course. And I and I teach a uh, undergraduate course in genetic engineering, uh, risks and benefits. I always always try to make sure that in those kinds of contexts we we give at least as much time to the perceived or verified risks uh, versus the uh, the benefits or in addition to benefits I should say and um, yeah so so that's that's been uh, you know my my one of my recent activities is to go there uh, into China 1990 it's 2015 I was in Shanghai University in 2016 this year I was in uh, Jilin University and I plan to go back next year so um yeah, and, and one of the things that I can say with confidence, and you may know this, Kevin, from your own experience, uh, you know, in, in this general field, is is that the, the Chinese uh, people are probably about like the Western Europeans in terms of their uh, skepticism or hesitancy around uh, genetically engineering food. Uh, they do grow genetically engineered uh, cotton and, and papaya as well. Um, but uh, but uh, no other crops. Although they're they're seemingly quickly moving towards that in in uh, China, the government of China and the scientific community by and large are uh, moving rather quickly towards that uh, state where they are using uh, genetically engineered crops. And so so my interest in genetic engineering as a as a lecturer actually corresponds very well to their interests. And uh, so. Uh, so you know, I, I I go and I talk about that, and, and I always say what I what I know based on being a science scientist, and the students learn to um, that it's okay to question me. <laughs> you know, it's really okay, and uh, you know, I, in fact, I expect it, I reward it, um, and uh, you know, and and they 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 come to learn something about the science, and hopefully have a better uh, basis from which to go forward in in, in their country. Well, there's two really interesting aspects of genetic engineering, of the genetic engineering story. In when I think about China, and um, I love teaching there too. I have a I have a good time over there. But um, one of the interesting things is that Greenpeace may, has a very strong presence in China and does a tremendous amount of misinformation um, uh, dealing as though they do as they do here and they do in Uganda and any place that's trying to adopt genetically engineered crops. And the difference is, is that their story is specifically trained to the young Chinese men and women that they'll say you're going to be infertile. They don't, Uh they don't, they don't say you're going to get cancer and autism and Parkinson's. They say you're going to be infertile because of all the questions about um, family and, uh, you know, family size. They know that that's a hot button. 
Mm. The other really interesting thing about China is that if I go there and talk to colleagues who work in uh, in crop biology, they say that there are literally tens of thousands of genetically engineered crop lines just waiting oh. in the wings to be released. Oh, interesting. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, the, the thing about fertility, that, that w- nobody's ever raised that question. Uh, so, so now you've given me a good lead, Kevin, to sort of tease that out of them because they must have heard claims um and and you know those become great learning opportunities is you know if, if they'll give that voice then you know then the next challenge is okay you know then whoever comes with you know a, a source of information on that topic in you know that i can read or that you can translate <laughs> um will will get some extra points you know and and everybody can get extra points in other words let them go and research it and let's look at the claims and where is the basis where is the science for it uh you know to support it and i i did something like that this past time and um we actually went through one of the national it was one of the national academy of sciences reports and and you know they could actually see that you know that there really is a basis for claims of safety and that it is supported by research so so i i I can envision doing the same thing with with the fertility claims and, and let them dig for themselves and you know, we'll spend a, a couple class periods, and and so they'll learn the process of, of 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 digging for what's behind the claims. Is there good science behind the claims? And at the same time, um, you know, they'll they'll be more comfortable refuting some of the claims that are being made. And what about in other places? Like in uh, you've given lectures in Uruguay and other places. What? How do people respond in uh, South America to to the uh, to the topic of genetic engineering? Yeah, Uruguay. Uh, I think the, the I think the, what do they call the Southern Cone, the Brazil, Argentina, Uruguay. It's there's there's probably enough of a uh, of, of a of a solid um, large scale production farming systems that that there's there's a mix of opinions. Uh, you know, kind of like there would be here, and largely farmers, at least the large grain farmers, understand that there are there are benefits to the technology and and so on. So those countries would be, you know, I've, you know, you could certainly find someone that would be very opposition in, in great opposition, but but by and large it would be like the United States. Uh, my experience in Central America um, was was uh, rougher on this topic. Uh, I, I actually the the students themselves uh, really were interested, so that was promising and hopeful. Um, but there are. Uh, there are in, uh, quite a few individuals in Central America that um, that uh, that seem to be uh, re- basing their their claims on you know questionable information, and uh, can be very influential. and And there's an element in in my experience in Latin America that I, that I'd like to share. That that is, I have come to understand that in 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 especially the smaller countries in Latin America. You know, Central America, for example, uh, there 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 have been so many bad experiences with domination by external influences. Our own country, for example, and 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 uh, multinational corporations, of course, that there that that many times people in 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 Latin America and in some of these smaller smaller countries, especially, they associate genetic engineering with domination. And so, um, so it, it really, and, and I wish I had really understood that at the time, 
because it would have been easier to then seek some shared values. Because I'm not, when I say genetic engineering, I'm thinking helping people have, you know, adequate food and nutritious food, the things, you know, less pesticides, you know, in the environment. All these are all good things. We all care about these things. But when we, you know, when I say GMOs or genetic engineering, what they hear is domination. And, oh, you're trying to cause us to be dominated. And, I'm, you know, I, I didn't know that that was, that was sort of that underlying mindset. And so it's, yeah, you know, that's just one of those live and learn things and blog about it, you know, let, it, let other people know. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah, it's actually kind of odd because in so many ways – the, using more technology, and as we've seen with any other technology, it gives the opportunity to be free, and you know, to be uh, to immune or less likely to be under domination, because mm-hmm. you know uh, countries, you know, especially in Africa now, that are doing this on their own, uh, because they don't yeah. want to wait for the the West to have to uh, sort it out. You know, which I give them so much credit. Yeah. Um, and, and maybe that's a good place to kind of segue into the, those kinds of ideas that in so many areas of the world, there are opportunities, especially in the area of plant pathology, to be able to um, control a pest or a pathogen uh, th- and using genetic engineering. And it's one of the places that we really haven't seen the technology penetrate in commercial crops um, outside of papaya, obviously, where, you know, viral right. diseases, some squash. But right. As a plant pathologist and somebody you know who, who really knows that area well, what are the most promising mechanisms that you think could make a tremendous difference for farmers and for consumers? Well, yeah, thanks, thanks, Kevin. I I'm very interested in this topic, and I and I do think we are, are definitely underutilizing genetic engineering. Not that it's as you know the only answer, but uh, you know to problems. But it is a powerful set of technologies, and we are. Where is no question we're underutilizing it, and and oh, and I'll, I'll make a shameless plug for my uh, paper on this topic. But for the readers that are interested uh, in the journal Sustainability, I wrote a review paper on this very topic. So, you know, look for look for that if you're interested in in seeing all the things that I can't cover. But let me give you an example to respond to your question. Here, here's an example. Um, there are genes which which you might even understand better than I do as a plant scientist. You're, you, you've got a long, much longer history than I do at the, in understanding the molecular basis of, of um, what plants do. But all right, there are genes that are what we loosely call susceptibility genes. And so the plant is producing with a susceptibility gene, it's producing some product that is uh, some molecule that is beneficial for the plant and beneficial for the invading parasite. And so if, if um, sometimes we can disarm that susceptibility gene, just you know, do a gene knockout of, of, in various ways, including CRISPR technologies, and by knocking that susceptibility gene out, we may not harm the plant in any, any way, but um, if the, the, path, the pathogen needs that molecule in order to be able to invade and parasitize, then now we've deprived it of, of that molecule. So... So, uh, so those plants become uh, more resistant to infection. And, and what's important about that, there's a couple of things that are important about disarming host susceptibility genes. One is we're not introducing any foreign DNA. You know, it, it, I mean, introducing a gene from a bacterium into a plant doesn't worry me, but it does, you know, have that unpleasantness factor for some people. Okay. Well, in this case, we're not, we're not doing that. We're just disarming a gene, maybe knocking out one or two nucleotides or causing a substitution in one or two 
nucleotides or letters in the DNA string. So, so it's, it's very easy. There's no introduction, conceptually easy. There's no introduction of foreign DNA. And it's probably going to be um, uh, st- durable because, because you're not putting on a poison and forcing the parasite to uh, adapt to the poison. You are depriving it. When you knock out a susceptibility gene, you are depriving the parasite of something that it needs. And so now it must create some new um, you know, p- function to replace the lost host molecule that was encoded by that uh, that uh, susceptibility gene. So, so uh, that would be just one example. Disarming host susceptibility genes, we have a wealth of opportunities through genetic engineering. More every month. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, and and uh, I sure would rather do that than spray pesticides. That's, you know, that's my bias on this. Well, I, I, I love those ideas because being able to disarm the signaling pathways or disrupt the signaling pathways that inform, uh, that, that allow a pathogen to become uh, um, a problem, uh, it's easy to do that. And, and you look at all the strategies that we've used, um, well, there's been many that have been kind of like dominant uh, gain of function ones like BS2 where you can make the tomato yes. uh, immune which is which that was like episode I don't even know 12 or something in the series but um, so many good opportunities what are some other good targets aside from say like these kinds of receptors and other types of molecules that we could maybe mutate so that pathogens can't identify with the host what, what are some other examples well, um, you know, a couple. There, there's uh, one is is uh, you know using gene silencing to silence uh, pathogen genes. You know, that, so any 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 basically really, I think many pathogen genes can be silenced through incorporating a piece of that gene uh, as DNA into into the host. There, there's another angle on genetic engineering which which I'd like to um, you know to really say something about and that is deployment because i think this is really this is really an important reason why we're not we're not we're not going to abandon conventional breeding as you know and it's still critically important and and genetic engineering helps us in a way that is is more difficult with conventional breeding Mm -hmm. and that is through deployment so so we want to deploy genetics by whatever means we obtain those genes that that confer resistance we want to deploy those in a way that that confers some degree of durability, right? Sustain, to, to contribute to sustainability, we want the genetics we use to to last a long time. And um, there is no such thing as a gene that will overcome a, a parasite forever. I, I don't believe there is. They they adapt, but we want to gain the most uh, duration of from the genetics that we use as possible. And there are a couple ways that gen, uh, genetic engineering gives us an advantage over. Um, uh, conventional breeding and one is uh, gene stacking so like um, we know that multiple genes having multiple genes for resistance uh, that that work in different ways against the parasite that's going to be more durable than a single gene we know we know this. this is well established in the literature so how do we get how do we stack multiple genes that say target oh you know it could be the citrus greening um, parasite if we if we had three or four genes that re- conferred resistance, then we could stack those together. And that would be expected to be much more durable than a single gene. That kind of stacking is more 
it's it's just easier to do uh, with genetic engineering than conventional breeding. The same is true with rotation of genes. If we confer some sort of or create some sort of rotation in annual crops where we we use gene A for three years in the breeding program and then switch to gene B and for three years uh, again that 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 kind of movement uh, of 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 a different gene into an elite background genetic background is going to be as far as I understand uh, easier with genetic engineering than than um, than conventional breeding so. Uh, and taking advantage of the diverse mechanisms that that I've described in this review paper, again, that's going to be that, that depends on our use of genetic engineering. So, so there, there we have scientists. I don't say we because I, you know, I can't take credit for all the great work that mo- molecular biologists have done, but molecular biologists have blown open the doors in recent years. They've blown open the doors on the kinds of strategies that are available to us to engineer resistant plants. And more strategies are likely to be published. And, um, and in order for us to take advantage of those so that we can um, improve food security, so that we can reduce pesticide use, I, I, think it, I think it's just like a cell phone. We could live without cell phones, but why would we want to? You know, And we could live without genetic engineering, but why would we want to? It's, it just offers us a way to do things that are important to meet the genuine needs of, of our brothers and sisters and to address environmental challenges of food production. No, very well stated. I, 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 I share your thoughts 100%. You know, the, the need for plant breeders and plant genetic improvement, it's such a diverse field in so many ways we can do it. Um, and really, it's it, the genetic engineering is just the cherry on the sundae. You're mm-hmm. looking at um, one last little tweak that uh, really must happen inside a very um, strong and, and uh, high yielding and all the good horticultural traits that you would want in your in your crop. Um, so it's it's really an important message. I guess the the other thought the other thing I was thinking about was um, uh, re- you know recently with respect to your work um, was your recent blog about um, about uh, the biocontrols and and this mm-hmm. concept of safe and natural and. Do you want to expand on that a little bit here? Oh, I should mention, I will put, post a link to your paper, your plant pathology paper. Oh, I'll do that. Thank you. Thank um, you very much. So okay. tell me a little bit about the, about this, about the biocontrol blog, because it was, it was an yeah. interesting take. Yeah. Yeah, thanks. Uh, yeah, it was, it was actually, th- th- this all started, well, let me, let me back up. The, the plant pathologists and people like yourself um, working in agricultural sciences, come to understand eventually that uh, oh the the concept of natural doesn't mean safe and and we we commonly confront this kind of uh, assumption with re- that, that I've honestly must say I sometimes have uh, incorrectly but uh, falsely but but that's what you know I sometimes have we, we commonly confront that with pesticides or, or synthetic chemicals synthetic chemicals are bad natural chemicals are good well of course you know there's there's aflatoxin which is nat- perfectly natural and perfectly sure hazardous right yeah dog so, turds many, lead you know y- yeah. yeah exactly many many examples everybody's got examples so so um so that I, I had been exposed to that assumption that natural is safe is you know many years ago but uh, it you know it dawned on me that the same really should be challenged in the biological area so so all right so like there are biological controls that are being researched some are on the market for plant disease or for other uses 
And um, well, I got I got into this dig into the literature because I got a phone call. It was really an upsetting phone call. It was from a woman that was suffering a an infection, uh, an opportunist in, infection by a. Um, um, Oh, Erwinia herbicola, the current name of, of what is what used to be called Erwinia herbicola, a bacterium that actually has biocontrol properties in, for plant disease. And she, and, I, and she told me she had this opportunistic infection, and she was very scared and wanted to know how it got there and so on. And so, so I explained to her that it's a, you know, this is basically a, a widespread bacterium in nature, and uh, you know, there's no telling where she got exposed to it. Um, and uh, but but this idea that it was an opportunistic human uh, pathogen, I was not exposed to. And so I, you know, I of course spent time digging into the scientific literature on that. And not only did I find that the, it was indeed an opportunistic human parasite, but it, but there are other examples of human uh, opportunistic parasites that are at least by the species name are also have been researched for at for their plant disease biocontrol properties. And uh, so I, I think I listed five in that uh, blog piece, and maybe maybe the easiest thing to do is put up a link to that too. Yeah. And and a, another one that I would add is is um, Burkholderia sapatia, which is really should be on that list too. So there are six, you know, recognizing the species concept of bacteria is can be in flux. There are six species, at least some strains of which bacterial species, some strains of which can provide some degree of biocontrol in a plant disease, and other strains of which, maybe some of the same strains sometimes, can be found in humans. And so I wrote that article, again, to challenge uh, people to, to understand that the same assumption, that natural equals safe, is really an assumption that doesn't hold up, even in the biocontrol Realm and, and in fact, at the American Phytopathology Society meetings there a couple of weeks ago, in a couple sessions, I just nonchalantly brought this point up again because I had this great opportunity, and and I could see that it got people's attention. Like what? Opportunistic infection. So so you know we all need to be exposed to that point that you know that if whether it's natural or 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 pr- produced by a, uh, an industry. That doesn't determine safety. What determines uh, safety, or at least what what points to whether it's safe or not, is is the scientific evaluation, and uh, not not just an assumption that natural is is safe. Yeah, my favorite that I always get is, well, we've been doing it for for five thousand years, and you know that one just doesn't wear out, wear well with me because the same people that are saying we need to have over the top evidence for some new technology. Um, or you know some new drug or whatever um, are the first ones to say. Well, obviously the Chinese have done it for five thousand years. It must be wonderful. You know, it's, it's a very strange dichotomy. Yeah. Well, and and people have you know, I, not to make light of people's fears and concerns, we we don't we we we, we do respect them. And and I, I also point out, yeah, and people have been dying you know young for you know very long i mean really life expectancies have only in, increased in this uh you know the last 100 150 years and in in you know in parallel to technology adoption of technology so um and and you know every plant you know when it comes to genetics every plant is a is a unique creation uh genetic creation and epigenetic creation so 
um, you know, every, everything, you know, can be can be considered to be, um, you know, uh, worthy of evaluation. Not it's you know, I, I know I'm speaking to the, the, the choir here, but but uh, genetic engineering, as you know, it doesn't create a unique risk. Uh, it, you know, by and large, it's not uh, doesn't create a unique risk. So. So, yeah. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. No, there's there's nobody in any choirs that listen to this, by the way. Okay. <laughs> so you're not so, preaching to the choir. No, they're okay. they're uh they're no, they're they're out doing other things. Now, uh science podcasts not always real big. Well, I guess it's a good place to wrap it up. So thank you very much to Dr. Paul Vincelli, that uh, extension professor, uh, provost, distinguished service professor at University of Kentucky in the plant pathology department. You know, you're welcome back anytime. And if you ever want to co-host this thing or host it on your own, let me know. You'd be wonderful. Okay. You know, and Thank you. Um, it would be great for you to use this platform to um, build your extension empire. Tell us where we can find you on social media. <laughs> oh, yeah. Actually, I'm, I'm, I'm most active on Twitter. So I think it's at P-V-I-N-C-E-L-L. And, um, and so that's, in fact, those, uh, I do post things to Google and to uh, Link and to Facebook. But, um, but Twitter is my sort of preferred social media. So, yeah, I'd be glad to uh, interact with people there. That's a good place to do it. And I retweet everything I can of yours when I see it. So thank you very much. But thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Um, a pleasure, Kevin. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. I appreciate it. And that's it for Talking Biotech today. Um, re- remember to really think about these technologies and the way in which they could benefit mankind. Uh, they could be good for the planet and for people, of course, with reservations and careful testing. And uh, as we go forward, just try to spread the word about what these technologies are and, they, and aren't, starting out by communicating what is important to you, what's important to your family, what are the stories around you and in your life that really made you choose to do what you do and then as a uh, you're not coming at people as a teacher and as a scientist especially a know-it-all professor you're coming at people as a trusted friend who they can relate to and that's the way that we're going to solve this problem thank you so much for listening and we'll talk to you again next week thank you for listening to the talking biotech podcast please send your suggestions for guests comments or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com Please write a review on iTunes and recommend this podcast to a friend. More downloads and reviews raise the visibility of this podcast and help us reach a wider audience with science. You've traveled through the valley of, of the shadow of death. <laughs> and uh, I'm sorry, I was so hard to witness that. But. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.